welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a film and TV editor, and I talk to my colleagues about the art and craft of editing. My guest on this podcast is documentary director and editor Todd Miller of the spectacular documentary Apollo 11. It was in theaters earlier this year. It looks so good on the big screen, but since it's from CNN Films, it also has air dates on CNN. There is a slightly shorter version of the documentary that you can catch at your local science center or museum IMAX screen. A lot of the footage was actually shot on film in 65mm or higher and meticulously scanned at 8K. So seeing it in IMAX would definitely be worth seeing some historical footage that nobody's seen before. Todd and I spoke over Skype with him in New York. I cannot tell you how many people I have spoken to, uh, colleagues in the field, um, that just were blown away by Apollo 11. Just loved it. Loved it. uh, oh, that's my, so kind. Yeah, one of my editor buddies said, the opening shot, if they had just stayed on the opening shot for 90 minutes, I would have been fine with that. <laughs> Believe me, I think I probably could have done that too. That is so cool. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your background as a documentary filmmaker. It looks like that's been uh, what you've been doing and uh, producing, directing, and editing everything that, that I can see. Yeah, um, I, I started out with uh, with actually a documentary in film school. Uh, just kind of fell in love with the format. I've, I've joked with people though. I'm a you know I'm a fiction filmmaker, but my last two projects have been archival documentaries. Uh, but um, I definitely approach uh, you know the the films, at least the documentaries I've made, uh, in, in a fiction way. Um, but yeah, I did a, a, a started out as a as a student film and kind of turned into more than that. Um, goes back. Uh, to the late 90s, uh, so I was shooting on film, some 35, some 16, uh, and then transitioned into videotape. So that tells you how long I was working on the project. Uh, it was about four years. Uh, and um, after that, uh, I did a, uh, a fiction film uh, where we uh, uh, had optioned uh, screenplay um, and had three actors, uh, Anthony Rapp, Max Casella, and Chance Pinnell. We shot it in six days in upstate New York, um, and uh, uh, we shot it with uh, uh, two XLL or XL2s, uh, Canon XL2s, which had just come on the market um, uh, back then. Uh, so that was a real, as far as editing goes, uh, I edited that project, um, and that was a really um, uh, challenging uh, project. I worked pretty closely with... Um, uh, with uh, Avid, uh, with Michael Phillips at Avid, because uh, we yeah. had some uh, some issues uh, with uh, some of the technical stuff um, on Avid uh, with doing advanced pull down features, etc. Uh, but uh, that really got me into loving uh, editing. Um, you know, multi camera shoot. Uh, we had two cameras going all the time, uh, and, and uh, just kind of a, a free form uh, style of. Uh, cinematography um and it was a beast it took me years to to edit that um and the film really didn't go anywhere um you know we we made it just uh because it was something we wanted to do uh you know we were all friends and um uh just wanted to uh uh, work on something that we could shoot quickly um and then uh shortly after that um i started uh dinosaur 13 um and that was uh uh, planned to be just an an art film uh it was an excuse really to get out of new york um uh, i'd I'd been uh, doing a lot of 
taken a lot of editing jobs, directing jobs, uh, some producing jobs, uh, and uh, I was I was just kind of spent, uh, and that was uh, right at the, the height of up 2008. Um, and uh, so we spent a lot of time out west shooting. Uh, my producing partner uh, Tom, uh, who's a cinematographer, he and I both were were shooting. I was editing as we were going along. That film took approximately uh, three years to make. Um, and it turned into something more uh, when we stumbled across one of our interviewees, uh, Peter Larson, who had discovered this uh, T-Rex. So um, that uh, led to um, just a, a wonderful experience working with him and his group and some other people. And we're kind of shown this uh, wonderful world of paleontology. Um, and uh, uh, that film uh, premiered at Sundance uh, in 2014. Uh, it was acquired by Alliance KCNM Films. Um, and then shortly after that, we were trying to get back into uh, some fiction filmmaking, um, but uh, an opportunity came along uh, uh, with CNN Films. Uh, they were interested in doing uh, some short films uh, for a new initiative that they had. And we were actually working on a project uh, that uh, was, uh, oddly enough, looking at the provenance of one particular moon rock that was collected on Apollo 17. Hmm. And that got us into the world of, uh, of that um, uh, kind of the archive uh, and um, distribution network within NASA and, uh, and National Archives. Um, and so when they approached us for the short film, I said, I've got all this wonderful archive from Apollo 17. Um, it really became an, an editing experiment to see if we could tell that story using only archivable um, materials. Um, and we just had a, a great time working on it. The team that I connected with on that project um, uh, and a lot of the guys, you know, I've, I've just worked with for over a decade um, uh, became the backbone for the team that became Apollo 11. Um, and certainly all the uh, the, uh, the people that we met uh, within the NASA system and National Archives uh, assisted us in, in generating Apollo 11. Mm. Uh, one of the things that um, intrigued me, like got me to watch, the, I don't remember if this is quite the way this worked, but I, I seem to remember seeing, hearing something about this movie that there are, there's no interviews and there's no talking heads. And I said, that's interesting. I got to check that out. And for those who have not seen the film, it is a very kind of fictional narrative approach to a documentary. Yeah, I mean, from early on, um, we always had anticipated there being a, uh, a, a version of the movie that was going to exist uh, on IMAX screens at science centers and museums. Um, and I have always been a fan of these, uh, the, the predecessor on Max, a lot of the Tadeo formatted films from the 50s and 60s. Um, there were some showcases in and around New York over the past decade where occasionally they, they'd show some of these films. A lot of them were shot in Cinemarama, and it's not like the big films like Ben-Hur, but uh, some of these um, films that were geared more towards science centers and uh, uh Expos, uh, but they were shot on 65, 65 uh, millimeter, five perf. Uh, a lot of them were shot in Cinerama, meaning three cameras, three projection systems. Uh, and they would do cut downs of these uh, for single screen, whether it was for academy qualifications or, you know, just a, a different way to exhibit it. Um, one particular uh, filmmaker that I really um, uh, fell in love with was uh, Francis Thompson, who owned the Francis Thompson Company here in New York. They were doing a lot of 
kind of pre-avant-garde art films uh, where they played with um, not only um, kind of quasi-verite films, but also a lot of fracture narrative stuff. So, uh, for instance, they did a wonderful film called To Be Alive, uh, 20-minute short, uh, played at the New York World's Fair in 65. Uh, they did a cut-down for that. Um, it was shot Cinemarama, but they did a cut-down, um, and it... Uh, uh, played um, for Academy qualification, won Academy Award. Um, and uh, it, it's just, you know, they were doing things, um, uh, again, with narrative that was very innovative, that would inform things in the late 60s, uh, moving into the 70s, films like, uh, you know, Grand Prix and Woodstock, films that I always loved as an editor uh, that played with, um, you know, Parallel Time, uh, again, fractured narrative, split screens. Um, so uh, when we came across um, a lot of the footage um, and working particularly with my archive producer early on uh, who was supplying me with kind of the best available footage. Um, uh, I, I just instantly went back to kind of that filmmaking um, style. Uh, and it was something that um, uh, a lot of times where uh, they used more of a verite approach um, with um, whether it was within their own films, some archival material, but certainly things that were shot um, present day as well. Uh, talk a little bit for the people who haven't seen the film about the approach, uh, about what the film looks like and sounds like. Uh, I could describe it myself, but uh, you're the one that spent years doing it. So um, if you could just tell people what they, what the film kind of looks like and sounds like. Well, the best example we have is we jokingly, uh, within the team call it Dunkirk in space. So for those of you who have seen Dunkirk, um, it's, it's like that only you're in space. Um, right. so in the sense that you're dropped into a situation, you go on a trip, you don't know if you're going to come back or not. Um, and, uh, and, and then you, um, eventually do. Uh, so we wanted viewers um, to just be dropped in. Um, in this case, it's right as the mighty Saturn V rocket um, on May the 5th of 1969. I'm sorry, May 20th of 1969 is being uh, uh, carted out to the pad, uh, pad 39A down at Cape Kennedy, as it was called. Um, and then you just go on a ride. Um, we have no narration. Um, there's no uh, talking heads, no present day narration. Uh, but what was really interesting, um, we were we were given access to uh, uh, a ton of large uh, formatted film, uh, but equally as important was the audio that we were given access to, uh, a lot of which had never before uh, been heard. Uh, and when you listen to a lot of the, uh, what we refer to loops, the mission control loops, um, sitting right next to the flight director, kind of back and to the left in the back of the mission control room in the front room is uh, what they call a public affairs officer. And the way mission control worked, they were in four-man shifts. So, um, so they could operate 24 seven, uh, during the nine day mission. So one of the public affairs, there was anywhere from four, sometimes there was a, uh, a fifth one thrown in. Um, but they were, they were, their job was to narrate, uh, the mission as it was happening live, uh, for the public. So the NASA feed that was going out, uh, to the world, whether it was going out through the networks, um, or it was going out through radio, um, was, uh, these guys were, really the, the, the voice of the mission and they were doing, um, you know, blow by blow of what exactly was happening. It was really great for someone like me who had an interest in the subject matter, but wasn't necessarily, 
um, an uber nerd, um, as, uh, as I've become now for sure after making the film. But back then, uh, it helped to articulate a lot of the, um, technical things that were happening or things you just couldn't see because they were happening in space. And obviously there was no, um, you know, live TV cameras outside the spacecrafts. Um, so that became kind of our narrative thread, uh, to at least propel you into the mission and let you know what was happening. Um, and uh, obviously we had uh, all the air-to-ground transmissions um, that famously people have heard both within the command module and the lunar module. Um, and then uh, we also had uh, the onboard audio. So if the guys were on the backside of the moon and they weren't in communication with the Earth, they would flip on an onboard recorder. and uh, We had access to all those files. Probably the most important um, piece of audio uh, that no one had heard before was uh, we were given access to 18,000 hours of uh, Project uh, Apollo audio from these mission controllers. So if you can imagine mission control, you have 30 guys all sitting in the front room. Everybody that has a headset on is being uh, recorded on an individual loop, uh, and that is uh, being recorded to one-inch tape. Uh, and then in the back room, there's an additional uh, sometimes 30 to 40 tracks of audio being recorded. Um, so at any given time, our team was actually, uh, let me back up our team, when we were given access to that, uh, and of those 18,000 hours, 11,000 hours of it was Apollo 11. Uh, when we were given it, um, when it was given to us, uh, there was it wasn't synced. Uh, there was some hum introduced during the recording, uh, a lot of deinterleaving that needed to take place, um, and it was just a mess. Uh, it was actually digitized for a speech recognition project with the University of Texas Dallas, uh, but when we got it, uh, we needed it for a different um, you know, reason, and they weren't anticipating, you know, uh, I don't think, filmmakers to utilize it. Um, but when we got it, um, thanks to some really uh, brilliant work by um, uh, ben Feist, one of our um, uh, tech consultants up in Toronto, uh, had worked with a grad student out in Europe. Uh, they developed a algorithm to tackle all of this audio, to sync it all up. So when I got it, um, I could actually look at it in a timeline and on off every single channel. Uh, sometimes I would have, you know, 200 tracks at my disposal uh, to tell the story. Um, but none of it was transcribed either. So it was the work of all of us uh, to uh, try to determine exactly, you know, uh, what was happening, when it was happening, if there was anything of interest, if there was anything new that we could build scenes around. Um, so that became um, really, uh, and I'm sorry, this is a very long no, answer to your question, but that was um, how we started um, to actually uh, piece the entire edit together and why it was uh, a little different than what, you know, normally um, you would hear. Uh, so believe it or not, there is a nine-day version of the film <laughs> that exists. That was kind of our, uh, that's how we started, was to just get every single piece of available audio, uh, still photography, uh, both from uh, the ground and also what the astronauts shot, the flight films, uh, anything that was, uh, you know, uh, the, the broadcast transmissions, everything related to the mission, uh, we wanted to throw into a timeline and then see what we had and then just go through it um, and then uh, pick out our story. A nine-day version of the film, hopefully broken down into more than one sequence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was actually... Um, Believe it or not, it was nine nine sequences on the timeline. Nine twenty-four um, hour sequences. Uh, yeah, oh it was crazy. But the gosh. the um uh uh our Ben Feist, who I had mentioned, uh, is actually um uh 
uh, he had, I had met him on when we did the Apollo 17 project and, uh, he had a website. I was halfway through the edit on that. And I stumbled across his website, which was Apollo17.org. And, uh, we immediately hit it off, but I said, why didn't I, I should have, you know, why didn't you build this thing six months earlier? You could save me a lot of time. Uh, but he's actually building one, uh, for this, uh, film, uh, it's kind of a companion piece in time for the 50th anniversary in July, um, called Apollo in real time, uh, org. Hmm. So you can grab a sleeping bag, set your alarm clock and go on <laughs> Ben's website and see all the other materials. Wow. So now one of the things that uh, I don't think either one, uh, both of us are kind of taking for granted for those who haven't seen the film is you talk about large format. I talked about this amazing first shot for those who haven't seen the film or know much about your project. Talk a little about, about the visual imagery that you're dealing with. Yeah. So initially um, we knew we had access to the 16 and 35 millimeter of film. Um, I had a little bit of a, some frustration um, and uh, having some of the uh, original negative from the Apollo 17 film that we did uh, having that telecining. I wasn't really happy with uh, the results. Um, and uh, there were some shots that we, we were able to scan. There was others where like the negative was just, it was in terrible shape. Um, so I really wanted to, um, uh, if we were going to do the project, I really wanted to rescan everything. I knew film scanning technology, excuse me, had come a long way, um, but I didn't know, um, you know, to, to what degree. It's been, you know, a long time since I personally uh, shot on film. Uh, so uh, it just so happened the post-production facility, uh, Final Frame here in New York, we had a really personal relationship with. I did my last film, uh, you know, Directors tend to fall in love with their colorist. I'm certainly the case. So the owner uh, of Final Frame, uh, who, who's uh, been my colorist on all my stuff for at least 10 years now, um, was getting into the film scanning business, where a lot of houses were getting out of it. Um, and they were working on uh, some newer technologies uh, and had convinced me that, yes, they could take um, a massive amount of film scan it in, a, in a, uh, a decent amount of time. We At that time, we were dealing with 16 and 35, uh, some even 8-millimeter home video stuff, uh, and we were going to scan it all um, and up to about 4K, uh, which you know a lot of people think is kind of crazy for 16-millimeter, but um, we saw some, uh, through testing, some results that looked promising. So that was the original intent, um, and we were uh, primarily dealing with National Archives, uh, and it turned into a research project. We really needed to quantify how much of this material was out there. So it became uh, really incumbent on the researchers there uh, working with our archive team, their archivists and curators. Um, and to my surprise, no one had really uh, tried to uh, quantify how much uh, Apollo or Apollo 11 material uh, was there. A lot of it had changed hands within the archival system. Uh, a lot of things were spread across the NASA network. Uh, but National Archives being the end repository for a lot of these materials uh, seemed like a good place to start. So a few months into the project, uh, I got an email um, uh, at the beginning. Uh, it was actually in May of, of 2017 uh, from one of the supervisory archivists that said um, – we had stumbled across this uh, collection of large format film. Uh, it was the old school stuff I was just talking about. It was 65, five perf. Um, uh, so this was pre IMAX. Uh, 
And they also had um, uh, some 70 millimeter uh, 10 perf engineering films, commonly referred to as military grade one. Uh, like nobody really had uh, knew or, or had the capabilities to, to deal with uh, the, the military grade one stuff. So long story short, um, we uh, uh, entered into an agreement with the National Archives uh, to uh, basically scan these materials. Initially, we were going to uh, bring a team into uh, their facility. Uh, we realized it was going to take like a million years to be able to do it uh, because we were only able to do it within the, um, the, the, the office hours of when they were open. Uh, so we developed a plan uh, to have... Um, uh, a series of shipments um, and climate-controlled vehicles um, up the I-95 corridor from D.C. Uh, up to New York uh, over the span of months uh, where we would get um, uh, the materials uh, basically trucked into our uh, to final frame uh, in midtown Manhattan, um, and we would scan it. Um, and that's exactly what we did. Um, I would say the Several months before that actually took place, we did some test scanning with uh, some of the different uh, reels um, they have brought up. And uh, to our surprise, I mean, I've, you know, I've heard Steven Spielberg describe seeing the dinosaurs, you know, uh, when Marin brought them in and, uh, on a computer and everybody just stood there. And it was kind of one of those moments Um we were, there's probably three or four of us in the room, and we didn't know exactly what was on uh, the reels themselves. Oh, yeah. We knew that they were, in a, they were in good condition, but they really only said Apollo 11, and some of them had the date of the launch, which was July 16, 1969. But other than that, we didn't really know. So one of the first reels that we, we put up uh, was uh, um, the uh, Saturn V being uh, rolled out to the pad. It was actually tails out on the reel, so it was upside down. Uh, we were kind of craning our necks, and but what really got me was that it was very clear it was an aerial shot. So not only were there large format cameras uh, documenting uh, the the launch, uh, we also had um, uh, aerial shots of it, which was astounding. Um, and I think the, the very next reel was uh, the suiting up shots. Uh, so uh, large format, uh, unbelievable quality of uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins being suited up uh, to go sit on top of the Saturn V. And uh, we, the bandwidth was very um, high coming off the scanner, uh, so we only saw it in bursts. Um, so we immediately digitized uh, a lot of it, only at that time in 4K. Uh, and then we ran around uh, to, um, to the DI room and, uh, and watched it on the big screen. And we just, I mean, it was just one of those moments where everybody just stood there speechless. We were just dumbstruck. Um, uh, and that began the process of, of um, uh, scanning all of this. So ultimately, we... Uh, <clears throat> developed a prototype scanner uh, with Final Frame and the hardware and software guys. Uh, uh, we went, um, it was capable of doing 16K, uh, but we saw some diminishing returns, obviously <laughs> dealing with storage solutions and hard drives and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of uh, settled on 8K uh, for uh, the majority of, um, of the 65. Uh, and then for the 35 and, and for the 16, um, we did uh, 4K. So you know, kind of like Mission Control, we just had like three teams working around the clock for months uh, to get it all in. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, you can imagine um, from an editing standpoint, uh, you know, we had to deal with uh, storage solutions was one thing. We had a security issue, too, in that we had all, you know, the bulk of all these materials um, 
uh, in one location, uh, which was terrifying, uh, you know, mainly because uh, we were surviving government shutdowns, uh, you know, during uh, 2018. Um, and at, sometimes we had, you know, uh, the raw negative housed in one location and, uh, you know, the hard drive. So um, it was uh, it was terrifying, to say the least. There was a couple there's a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, but we, you know, uh, uh, to final frame and the entire, uh, you know, all the technical guys working on it, uh, to their credit, we developed uh, just a ton of processes uh, to be able to combat any situation we had. Um, and the folks at National Archives and NASA were just amazing to work with. Um, so uh, duplication of hard drives. Um, by the time I got it, I worked out of uh, our offices, which are in Brooklyn. Um, so at least I was, you know, across the, you know, the, the um, East River. Um, but we try, you know, we definitely uh, every time about once a week we would uh, would copy over drives, uh, mirror drives, and, and ship them out, get them out of the state. Uh, so at least they existed at, uh, you know, at a, a triple location in case anything happened. Um, and then I began the work of uh, dealing with uh, 4K proxy files from all the 8K stuff uh, and putting the film together. Yeah, tell me about the 4K proxy files. What, like DNX LB, or what were you using in inside of the Avid? Yeah, so they were. Um, I actually edited the entire thing. I love Avid, uh, but I uh, edited it all on Premiere Pro. Um, I did do some stuff initially with Avid, um, but um, I really, uh, really like the the GUI um, on on Premiere Pro. So. Um, that just worked on this project, uh, uh, the integration. I ended up uh, having to do all the graphics myself, too. So uh, I was doing a lot of After Effects stuff, What turned out to just kind of be like placeholders for, you know, to get a big visual effects house to, to do all the graphics. Um, we all just kind of fell in love with it. So the whole Adobe suite actually uh, worked really well on this project. Uh, so we just stuck with it. Um, but, yeah, they were... Um, uh, ProRes um, 444 uh, HQ. That's that's all they were, um, and uh, the that was the vast majority of everything. Um, there was we did have some still imagery that the um, that the uh, astronauts shot. Um, uh, actually, they shot a thousand twenty five uh, seventy millimeter. Not to be confused with the footage uh, Hasselblad images. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a lot, but it's not um, compared to the other Apollo missions. They, those guys really didn't document. Um, their, their role wasn't to document uh, what was going on. They were just you know, supposed to get to the moon and back. But yeah, so I stuck with um, uh, Premiere Pro, um, and then I would bounce the once I got you know rough's gone. I would. Uh, you know, send a media managed project back over to uh, Final Frame. Uh, online editors would conform uh, based on my edit, and then we would go back to the original 8K source files, um, and those were integrated into uh, uh, the DI suite, um, where we had a combination of FilmMaster, um, they were DV products, um, and uh, Nukudo. Uh, and then um, we did a just a ton of. Uh, oh, I should mention we also used um, Transcoder uh, uh, with a K um, for all of our um, kind of dailies and proxies, and then you know review files. So, what does Transcoder do? I don't know that product. It, it, that's what made the proxies from the 8K originals and 4K originals. That's right. So, um, you know, it's just basically like a node encoder, um, really robust. Um, we used it, 
Um, I actually personally have never used it, um, but that I know that's the piece of hardware or software that was used um, to uh, to create um, everything. And then we also used, um, you know, here and there, if we had re <coughs> review files, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we use uh, Resolve. And did you, um, in Premiere, uh, did you, how did you organize the project to be able to keep it working smoothly? Did you break it into reels or into stories or sequences? How, how did that work? In yeah, so I, um, it was kind of tough uh, at first, mainly because uh, I have three kids. Um, so, uh, and I was having two on the way, twin boys. So wow. I set up an office at the house um, and then I had the, 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 the um, uh, set up at, the, at work took me about a week to get it all down, uh, but I basically had mirrored drives um, and kind of a mirrored setup at both places um, during the project. Um, but uh, uh, I would uh, basically just, I, I was surprised at how robust Premiere uh, was. Uh, I thought for sure I would have problems, uh, but I, I really didn't encounter anything. Um, each, uh, so I, I broke down the entire um, uh, film into days. Uh, so it's really, I say uh, nine days, but it's really eight days and change. So there was nine different sequences that represented each day. We needed to know everything that happened within that. Um, and then I would just have a main um, uh, uh, sequence. Um, and I had known the mission uh, so much. Uh, the, the great thing about working on a film like this, our script was the transcripts, um, which were thousands of pages long. Uh, but it gave you uh, a backbone in which to um, at least understand, uh, you know, what was going on in the mission uh, from Mission Control's vantage point, which is what we were doing with the film. Uh, we were telling the story uh, from the people that were um, participating in it at Mission Control uh, and then also from the astronauts POV. So um, I would uh, uh, have just, and it started off very simply as version one. Um, and then every single time I would change something, um, I would save a new version. Um, and every day uh, that I edited, I would save a new project. Um, and that kept things kind of, um, you would think it'd be confusing, but it's, it's, it kind of, it kind of, uh, uh, at least from a, a versioning standpoint, um, kept me in check. Uh, but also it allowed me to kind of streamline things. I'm very diligent when I edit. Um, I, I don't really rely on all the tools that, uh, that, uh, Premiere Pro has. I like to go through footage time and time and time again. I don't use assistance. Um, so it's just saturating yourself and exposing yourself in the footage. I'm lucky that, you know, I, I tend to only work on projects every few years. So, um, you know, I had the luxury of time, uh, but I could go in and basically create media managed projects each time I would save something. So, uh, I would, every morning I would, you know, wake up, save a new um, project, go in and just kind of clear out the dustbin of things I didn't need. Um, and then I, I've done that for, you know, short projects and long-term projects. It works for me. I, do not recommend that for young editors because you're all, you know, you're constantly, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you go, oh, I, I remember I saw something, you know, like two months ago and I should use it. Um, but that makes it efficient where I can open up a, you know, a, a sequence or a project and be able to work on it um, without it, you know, ever stuttering or, you know, having any kind of issues. Yeah, that's kind of the, do you find that's kind of the, the key to editing with premieres to keep your sequence count down? 
Yeah, I think so. I, I did find as it got higher, um, you know, as the file size got higher with the project, um, it, it um, you know, would uh, just take a long time to save. Um, and I am, I, I don't auto save. I'm one of those guys that's constantly hitting like command S. Um, so if I got to sit there and like wait for, you know, a, um, uh, you know, something to, uh, to, you know, load or, or whatever to save. Um, it's just infuriating because, you know, I like to work very quickly when it is, but, uh, so that, you know, just keeping that file size down, I found was the, was the key with Premiere. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the schedule since you kind of talked about how long you had to work on this. It sounds obviously like a huge project, a, a nine day version of the film, cut down obviously over years and thousands of hours of audio. It's at 11,000 and that was, was 11,000 just the guys on the headphones. And then there was additional audio beyond that. That's correct. Um, so the 11,000 hours was just the guys in mission control, uh, talking, um, on the loops and then also talking to, uh, uh, the capsule or the lunar module. Um, and then in addition to that, you had, you know, it wasn't nine days of uh, onboard audio. Uh, it was probably cut in half. Um, there was, uh, you know, days of that, um, and then there was uh, the the uh, directors, um, flight directors loop um, as well. Um, so, but we had pretty much, um, you know, now that we've we've kind of stepped back from it. Um, I mean, we're still in the uh, we're still in the middle of it because we're doing so much versioning. Um, with, uh, we're doing film outs with IMAX right now. We have the broadcast uh, version for CNN that we're uh, that I'm editing. Um, but we haven't had a chance to kind of stand back and go, uh, wow, it actually was a lot. <laughs> but it, didn't, it actually didn't feel like it. You know, we were working on it. It was just kind of, you know, peeling the, the onion. When does the broadcast CNN version come out? Uh, so that'll be out on uh, June the 23rd. Mm, okay. um, and then we also have, uh, so the, the theatrical version is kind of, um, uh, at its uh, end of its life, although they're talking about bringing back, um, that potentially by the, uh, back to the end of the year on, on some IMAX screens. Um, oh, but, season. uh, then we also have a, uh, the science center museum version, um, uh, which is uh, basically a 40-minute version of the feature-length version, which will be exclusively for science centers and museums within, like, NASA and, like, think of, like, National Air and Space. Yeah. Um, That's where uh, I saw my first IMAX film. Yeah, that'll be out on May 17th. Um, uh, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a very niche market. Uh, that'll be a worldwide release. Uh, so probably about, like, 100 screens or so. Um, but you can uh, uh, you can go and that that's called uh, Apollo 11 the first steps edition um, and you could uh, google that and, and find out where it's playing if it's playing near you um, let's talk about process I'm really fascinated you know the, this is a series of editing interviews that I do um, talk to me about your just kind of finding the story is is a big part of that. So you spend all this time creating the content, getting it into a system, kind of laying it out in a gigantic timeline, but then that's not a story. Yeah, and, uh, you know, for me, the most interesting part of about Apollo 11 um, was uh, was going to and uh, where we started was to actually read all the, the autobiographies of the astronauts um, and anybody. Uh, so actually, you know, 
getting the books and going through them and figuring out uh, what surprised me. Everyone knows about Apollo 11, but, um, and I had kind of a, you know, um, a cursory knowledge of it, um, being exposed to Apollo 17. Uh, what stood out to me um, initially was just the technical achievement. Um, I'm a big fan of films that, uh, <clears throat> uh, that are able to show audiences where you are uh, geographically within a scene or space. Um, and I always thought uh, an example of that, I mean, a simple example is, you know, uh, Denis Villeneuve's amazing at it, and, and the newest Blade Runner, just seeing you know, Ryan Gosling walk into a room. Uh, in one shot, he's able to articulate uh, space uh, for if it was uh, you know a potential fight scene in the opening of, uh, uh, of that film. What's about to happen? He in one shot is able to show you where that's going to you know foreshadow that, so you get an idea of exactly. Uh, the dimensions of the room, what's happening. So it's not when he goes into all the close-ups, it's not, you know, so um, uh, jarring. Uh, and I applied the same principle with uh, this film. Um, it was always amazing to me to see, uh, like, the articulation, the attitude of the spacecraft, what they were doing once you got into space, or where were we in a given um, uh, place during the launch, um, uh, and trying to kind of uh, move throughout different people having a shared experience um, and, and knowing where you were in that, um, whether it's a subconscious uh, thought process on the part of the viewer, uh, but it was very um, specific to the way I like to uh, put together a film. Uh, so uh, there was that. Um, and a lot of that came from uh, the just getting into working with NASA and their history department um, uh, and getting uh, uh, through MIT actually did all the flight dynamics worth on the Apollo mission. So reading the diagrams, how things were you know, uh, presented um, and then reading the astronauts biographies um, and, and seeing how, uh, you know, one good example is uh, they do the translunar injection uh, maneuver, which is a fancy way, NASA's fancy way of saying they're just going to light the candle to go to the moon after they've launched done a couple uh, turns in orbit around the Earth. Well, everyone that describes that that's an Apollo astronaut, for the most part, they all describe this incredible experience of uh, the J-2 engine lighting on the dark side of the Earth, and they used to call it tli uh, into sunrise. In fact, Armstrong on the onboard audio says we're going right over the Terminator, meaning the, the, the imaginary line on the Earth from the dark into the light. And uh, I always wanted to depict that. I'd never seen it depicted in a fiction or a nonfiction film. Um, but the astronauts talk about how extraordinary it was. Uh, and so we actually found a piece working with my archive producer, Stephen Slater, who's uh, based in the UK. Um, we found a piece from another Apollo mission that we could, uh, that we could fill in the gap. Uh, and then we got to show that, you know, to, to Buzz Aldrin um, and Michael Collins. Is this what it looked like? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked exactly like that. Um, uh, we did a, some similar things with some of the things they talked about in the book. Uh, Neil Armstrong had described his most, uh, he was asked his most indelible moment from the mission. Wasn't setting foot on the moon or even uh, returning home safely, but it was uh, seeing the moon from about 100,000 miles out. And there was a solar eclipse happening around the moon. Um, and we, they didn't shoot it on Apollo 11 uh, with their 16-millimeter camera. They didn't take any stills of it. Uh, but we had one from another Apollo mission. And again, we could show that uh, to the guys that were there um, and get an approximation of exactly what it looked like and design kind of a scene around that. 
Um, and then, uh, again, just going through the, uh, the audio, um, my producer, we kind of had a divide and conquer approach. Um, uh, we would, once we got, uh, uh, what we call 30 track audio, um, once we got all that mission control audio, we all just kind of took turns listening to it for things, you know, that would, um, uh, that would be adventurous. Uh, and Tom, my producing partner just had a knack for it. Uh, he just found all this amazing things uh like for instance they were talking about uh ted kennedy's uh chappaquiddick accident oh yeah happened, i remember which happened, that. Yeah, a couple of days before the mission so the flight controllers are talking about that so i was able to design an entire scene uh because we had water cronkite talking about it on a news broadcast um and kind of put that into uh the connection into mission control the the, you know, the flight controllers are talking about it. Oh, we forgot it. They've all forgotten about Apollo. Everybody's fo focused on Chappaquiddick. Um, so there was, that. and then Tom actually found uh, an amazing song uh, that the guys played. They had this cassette uh, uh, recorder on board, um, and they would routinely listen to music. All the Apollo astronauts did. Uh, Buzz Aldrin at one point says, "Hey, you guys want to hear some music?" Uh, and turns on uh, the recorder. A few hours into it, there was this amazing song. I've listened to that. I got pretty good ears, but I've listened to it a million times, and I still can barely pick it up. Uh, it took Tom probably uh, a good few days to figure out exactly uh, which song it was. Uh, but it was this amazing folk song called Mother Country by a folk artist, John Stewart, uh, not to be confused with the comedian, uh, but he was uh, uh, head of the Kingston Trio, probably most uh, famously, but um, recorded this amazing um, uh, soundtrack, kind of became like the, uh, the soundtrack for all of us working on the project. Um, and we were able to include that in the film. We actually tracked down, uh, unfortunately, John Stewart died. Uh, several years back, but we tracked down his widow, and it turned out she's a huge um, supporter of space. And John himself was wrote a song called Armstrong. They were friends with astronauts, uh, so it was a really uh, great connection. Um, but that kind of goes back to the storytelling um, was just to find things that would propel the narrative in a unique way, uh, but also uh, to let to like get out of the way of it. Um, we had this amazing footage. Um, and I think uh, it's very easy to over-edit this stuff. Um, mm. But, you know, uh, the the 16-millimeter camera that Buzz Aldrin mounted in the lunar module and turned on during the landing is some of the, probably, I would argue, the most famous shot in, in cinema. I mean, there's a reason why all three astronauts are American Society of Cinematographer members. Um, so we show that. I didn't know that. that. that as an unbroken shot. Um, and then probably my second uh, favorite shot right up there with that one is Michael Collins filming the lunar module coming up uh, from uh, the surface of the moon. And I think everybody tends to kind of show that, at least in films I'd seen as this, you know, kind of amazing, uh, miraculous thing. Um, and it was, but it was very, very technical. Um, I mean, they didn't even know where they were on the lunar surface. Uh, so they didn't know exactly, you know, the rendezvous coordinates, if it was going to work. Uh, so it was an amazingly intense uh, time. Um, and if you look at the, which we showcase in the film, the articulation of both spaceships, uh, they really couldn't see each other, too. Uh, so they were kind of coming in blind when they were during the rendezvous. Uh, and it was an amazing uh, sequence that led to the docking of the of the uh, spacecraft um and uh and then you know subsequently uh to be able to you know fire the rocket to, to get them home was equally as important because if that didn't happen they would have been marooned there so 
it was just taking time and kind of slowing down scenes uh, that were important to the mission, important to uh, the safety of the crew, getting the guys home, but also um, showcasing things that maybe uh, people hadn't seen before. How did you, uh, you talk about finding all these stories, and they are incredible, some of them through reading the autobiography, some of them through finding some great piece of audio or video. How are you keeping track of the stories that you have to work with? So you're, you're like building, you're building little compartments of stories that will then become the film. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, when you see the film, it's very modular. Um, so there are, there, there is, uh, I knew that there was going to be, uh, 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 approximately nine big sequences that we were going to do. And they were all based on, uh, really, really technical, um, you know, life endangering maneuvers that happen. One would be the launch. Um, another scene, uh, would be, uh, earth orbit. Another one, uh, was the translunar injection maneuver. Um, so each one of these, um, were very perilous. Um, anytime you're, you know, firing things in space, uh, it's dangerous business. Um, so, uh, every, you know, every scene was designed around, uh, one of those things. Um, and then also, um, the, uh, uh, the support structure that it took for each one of those maneuvers to happen. Uh, we would, you know, try to highlight as much as possible. Um, we also had a, uh, kind of a mantra, which was, um, it always was irritating to me to watch, um, Apollo documentaries, particularly if they were on TV, no offense against the editors on it. Um, I'm sure they were just up against deadlines. Uh, but you would routinely see guys, um, in, uh, you know, a, a, a blue shirt, um, and then two seconds later on the same days in a white shirt. Uh, so we tried to avoid that as much as possible. Um, the, probably the most, uh, some of the most amazing work on the film was actually done by my archive producer, Steven Slater, which actually really, he really jump-started the entire project. Um, the mission control footage itself uh, had no audio on it. Uh, so Steven, uh, during the early Apollo missions, the first three or four, uh, they didn't have any sync sound. The later ones did the J missions, but uh, the first ones did not. So Steven, um, who has spent um, a large chunk of his career taking um audio all the the, uh, the the from the you know the quarter inch or the one inch uh tape off these uh, uh loops for mission control and syncing them up a lot of times you're just lip syncing uh you might know uh, a day that things happen but it's a complete cluster as far as um how the actual uh reels uh were assembled ultimately when they were uh printed because uh, the negative, the cameramen, when they were shooting, uh, they shot with these uh, Arias cameras. Uh, each cameraman, there was mainly two in Mission Control. They each had two cameras, uh, daylight spools, and they were just on-offing the camera, uh, putting one down. They would grab another for speed, uh, put another down. Um, if you were lucky, maybe you got like a Mission Control clock in a corner, and then it would pan down to somebody saying something. Uh, but mostly it was all... Um, it was all just the, the work of uh, Stephen and, and, and uh, reading the lips of the mission controllers. So he had actually taken all the film after we had scanned all the, uh, the new uh, footage um, and uh, had uh, filled in the gaps with all the air to ground. So when we first started, he probably had you know dozens of clips uh, synced up. Uh, 
but by the end, he got them all. It was it was incredible. I mean, it took years to do, um, but uh, he was able to take every stitch of footage that we had, whether it was uh, the 65 millimeter or the 16 millimeter uh, from those two camera guys, uh, and 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 put uh, sound to it. So I was able to look at it uh, really for the first time and be able to. Uh, see exactly when things happened and, and, you know, as relation to a day. And we did take some shots, uh, you know, if uh, there was, you know, just a wide shot and uh, it might have happened like an hour after when it actually happens in the film. But primarily everything that's, you know, happening in the film takes place exactly as it was. Um, inside and outside of the, edit of the NLE, how are you organizing those scenes? Are you actually saying, hey, let's do the translunar insert or let's do the launch or I love the one little sequence. It was based on the audio that I was just, I remember in the, in the theater going, that's the coolest audio of the flight surgeon talking about the, the heartbeat rate of all of the astronauts as they launch. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that was great. Um, yeah, I couldn't believe we stumbled on that one. Um, uh, I just thought it was, uh, like, how could you not use that? <laughs> it was really amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, there was, um, uh, so I would have each day, um, and then within each day, um, if you can imagine, like, you know, V1 on my timeline was kind of, uh, I would just use that as, uh, uh, you're testing my memory now, it was film, uh, anything that was shot large format would be on V1, any one thing that was, like, on V2 would be, um, you know, 35. So it kind of, the best of the bunch was always on V1 and then it kind of, uh, got, um, deduced in quality as you went up in the, um, in the timeline, uh, but, uh, for all the different layers. But, um, I would always, you know, if I was kind of, you know, um, messing around with the scene, I might just, uh, take, uh, some of that, not necessarily create a new sequence, but just maybe at the tail end of the sequence I was working in, uh, just kind of mess around with, uh, with it. Um, another thing that was, uh, really important. Um, and I do this a lot is, uh, cause I like to cut my own trailers and, and luckily the distributors have let me do that so far. Um, but the, um, the, uh, uh I'm constantly like, uh, doing that like there'll be an idea that'll spark you know when I'm working on a scene I'll be like oh that'd be amazing like you know either a clip or like a style sample that I can give my audio guy or uh, you know uh, uh, you know maybe it's uh, some sort of reference that would work good for like uh, an extended trailer that I can show the DI guys uh, so by the end of the project I would uh, much like you know, in the sequences, I would, I would always have like, um, I think I gave uh, the distributors uh, probably like four different trailers to choose from at the end, uh, after working, um, and the same thing with the clips, uh, and, you know, obviously deleted scenes. So I was like, Oh, I know this isn't going to be in the film, but this will be an amazing deleted scene for, you know, a criterion collection, if that's ever to come or something like that. Uh, let's get back to the, I, I distracted you a little bit with the audio idea. Talk to me about, um, the organizing principles, maybe even outside the NLE, did you have a big board with post-it notes or index cards, or did you have a database of here are these the nine big sequences, but then all these other sequences that you started to discover? Oh yeah, I can probably if I can work this video thing, I could show you because um, <laughs> I'm actually in my 
thing. I don't know if that would help well, you, or, but, what, I mean, would, what would I'll, be I'll great would be um, what would be great would be a photograph uh, that you could send me later. It would be great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've got some uh, photos of this. Um, the uh, so uh, if you were here. Behind me in my edit suite, I have every single image uh, that's been uh, printed out um, from from the uh, uh, mission. Uh, it's chronological, uh, which was great. So that kind of keeps me. Uh, so all the photographs. I mean, it basically looks like a beautiful mind room in here. Um, I've got like every. Uh, I mean, I I really saturated my office walls with everything to do with the mission. Um, it looks kind of crazy to me right now, but it all made sense when I was really editing the project. Um, but uh, uh, there was um, uh, probably the, the biggest thing was uh, was uh, a map of mission control, uh, knowing where all the guys sat um, mm. and uh, knowing at what time uh, they were in on their shifts. Uh, so I actually have a little bit of a legend uh, that has a, there's an image of mission control you see where the retro fire guy is, where, you know, flight director sits, where the Capcom is, all the different um, uh, positions. Um, and then we have the shift changes where everything happens. So I knew, I wanted to know, like, you know, individual names. So when you watch the film, we actually introduce Dave Reed, who's the, you know, the retro fire guy, or Bruce McCandless. Uh, everybody seems to know who Gene Krantz was um, uh, from, you know, Apollo Thirteen, uh, and he was the flight director during the landing on eleven. Uh, he's certainly the dean of the flight uh, controllers, but there was four other ones that were, you know, uh, responsible uh, for the safety of the mission um, and did a phenomenal job. So I have all of them uh, uh, list out, and then also um, uh, when you get to the lunar surface, just kind of uh, what everything, where everything was. Um, again, going back to the train script which became our script uh we found a lot of discrepancies with the historical record so a big part of our work was to um do a lot of time remapping um not only with the audio but some of the footage needed as well uh because a lot of the cameras that you're utilizing shot variable frame rate um so and also some of the television transmission we got those uh to exactly where they were so there was a bit of a controversy for instance uh, not controversy but uh the current thinking was that uh, you know, when uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong went on lunar surface, they were out of communication for uh, a certain amount of time, um, and they went over there, and they should have been over here. Well, our work kind of showed, not kind of, it, it, it showed that um, the, they were never out of communication, um, and we were able to um, uh, get the mission clocks just right uh, uh, from our work, and then also correct some of the, um, uh, the transcripts that have been uh the official transcripts have been floating around. Um, and that's that was a really important part of our project uh, was doing that. Um, a lot of uh, people think that it's just, you know, NASA has a thousand people working around the clock to, you know, to make this thing work. It's not true. It's really the work of volunteers like ourselves um, and all the people that came before us and all the people that come after us uh, to track all this stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, and we're you know, still working on that um, uh, now. Um, and we were lucky enough to a lot of the guys that were responsible over the decades on um, uh, updating the historical record uh, had given us materials uh, to assist with the project um, and kind of you know, push the ball you know, further in, in our understanding of exactly what um, uh, you know, transpired during the mission. Um, 
So, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the timeline itself, um, uh, the, the great thing about working on a space film is they're on a clock and we're on a clock. So every, as long as I could get things, you know, synced up, um, it became very easy in the edit suite to be able to just kind of pick and choose what you wanted. Um, so much of this type of film, going back to the story, is about transitions. How do you get in and out of a scene? Um, and that was uh, that was always a key aspect uh, for me. Um, and then also, um, I know you might want to talk about it later, uh, but music. Uh, my longest collaborator is, is uh, my buddy Matt Morton. I've known him since we were kids. Um, and he is, uh, I utilize his music to kind of keep me honest in the edit. Um, uh, he, there was actually a, a track, um, he did a, uh, a period score for this on primarily a Moog synthesizer, uh, reissue 1968 Moog synthesizer. Uh, but he's, uh, a guitarist by trade, multi-instrumentalist. Um, and he gave me this little guitar riff, uh, on a, a ukulele, uh, actually. And um, a very, a very, uh, uh, high tech Apollo on. 11 kind of instrument. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I, I was just joking with him, uh, recently because he didn't even know I, I did this, but I kept that as, um, uh, you know, a muted track. If I ever got lost in the edit, I would go back to that because it had a certain cadence to it um, uh, that uh, kind of kept me in the rhythm of the edit. Um, and I would just, it was always on the very bottom of, you know, the timeline um, and uh, got me through a lot of, you know, those tough kind of transitions. Was he always feeding you? I, I remember, I think I saw a video about the music for Apollo 11, like on YouTube or something. Was he yeah, could have been. Could have been. Um, yeah, he. Um, so Matt, uh, you know, traditionally we he does a lot of traditional scoring uh, for my films, um, and he uh, we usually always post score. I'll temp in stuff, give it to him, and then he'll blow my mind with something better. Um, and uh, for this, very early on, he said, "Look, I want to do this. Uh, I only want to use." Uh, instruments from the period um, but I want to have it you know have a modern feel to a modern composition um, but I said yeah you know how about it so um, he would give me these he, he ordered this thing and it was um, there was only 25 that were made uh, these 1968 reissued mode and he uh, didn't know how to play it um, but kind of like all of us on the team that kind of saturate ourselves with the story um, he saturated cells and, you know, uh, synthesized electronic music of the 50s and 60s um, and just became a real, uh, you know, a super fan of it and then just really got his master's degree on it. Um, and I would get these uh, like hour long <laughs> compositions, which were terrifying at first, but then just became this amazing way to work. Um, and I could basically use all of uh you know an hour to two hour long uh composition which was uh very complex very moving had different layers to it different time signatures tone, whatever um but i was able to structure scenes around it and kind of that became the bedrock uh, and it was just a wonderful way to work in fact we said we're, we're never not going to work this way again in the future um uh because it just it it, it allowed me to um really slow things down play with it um and then i'm basically temping in you know the the music of my composer so even though that that instrument he was doing uh basically a, you know he was doing a live performance of it um uh he was able to figure out a way to 
control it through MIDI. Um, so if I gave specific notes, at least he can go back and kind of get it in the ballpark um, and, and layer in some things. Uh, uh, but it was it's just a tremendous um, uh, you know piece of work that he did. I'm just so proud of him. That's great. You mentioned transitions and how important those were getting in and out of scenes. Could you talk to me a little bit about transitions and anything specific, a, a transition or two that you remember or are proud of? Yeah, I think um, a really good example of that would be um, when we uh, were during the landing sequence. Um, initially, we didn't want to have any music on it, um, and we cut the whole scene together and there was just something missing about it. Uh, it, it was, uh, because when you land, I knew that I wanted everything to just go away. Um, and when you're on the lunar surface, you just enter into this entire, um, uh, existence of nothing. Um, and it's just, you're, you are in the vacuum of space on the lunar surface, much how the astronauts experienced it. Um, and initially the landing had a very similar approach. It was all, you know, a bunch of static and, you know, the air to ground and the, you know, the stuff from the onboards, the transition between the two was tough. Um, I thought it was going to be very easy, uh, but to find exactly when, uh, you know, that kind of line was, uh, which I thought was going to be the minute of touchdown, uh, as it turns out, it wasn't that easy because that's not how it happened in real life. Uh, you know, they, they landed and there was kind of this, even though uh, in the lunar module, they knew they landed, uh, Mission Control didn't. Uh, they had telemetry that said that they did and they actually had to come on and, and you know, there was kind of this tense, you know, uh, moments. Did they make it? Did they not make it? Hey, guys, you know, we see, we copy you landed. Um, and then, you know, obviously Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had just an amazing amount of housekeeping to do. They're turning off switches, you know, inside and, and calling out commands. Uh, so to try to transition that was tough. Um, and then uh, ultimately what we ended up doing was uh, putting the music bed on uh, the landing, which has actually become uh, one of my favorite uh, cues uh, in the film. Uh, but another, um, was also, uh, the transition of, uh, after, um, they, uh, get back into lunar orbit and they have to, uh, light the candle home, uh, during the trans earth, uh, injection maneuver. Um, that was, uh, a difficult one because we had this kind of, uh, it was a music cue initially that was very, uh, it was dramatic, but it was really intense, uh, intention driven. Um, and it just, it, the scene ends with Charlie Duke, the Capcom throwing his arms up in the air and going hallelujah. Once they acquire the signal and they know that the guys have the nose of the command module pointed home and it looks like everything's going to be okay. Um, they're going to get out of lunar orbit. They're going to get home safe. Well, it just, it, it, that the music was kind of taking us not into that. So it was a very simple fix. It took us like a month to figure it out. Uh, but, uh, we just had a simple, like, uh, 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 kind of drone that went from a very intense drone to a very kind of melodic drone. And it just fed right into the celebration that was going in uh, on at Mission Control. Um, so, uh, but to get in and out of that, you know, uh, those scenes initially were, uh, were difficult, but we knew it was, you know, it was very important. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it was in my head and I might even asked it about the schedule. Did we talk about that? How long um, this took? Like when you first started on the project compared to like, you're still working on it. 
Yeah, I think um, most editors can relate to uh, this story. Um, so we, when we first um, had met with uh, some of the government officials up here, one of the first times they had come to basically location scout uh, the facilities here in New York to make sure that uh, they were okay to send some priceless material up here. Uh, we could manage it. Um, in that meeting, the owner of Final Frame, uh, Will, uh, turned to me and he said, you know, Todd, if uh, we wait six months, uh, we'll be able to scan this, not in 4K, but in 16K. And uh, you know, like all these eyeballs just went to me. And of course, you know, what am I going to say? Uh, and this was, we were, I knew that I just, in doing that, was I, were, I was going to lose six months of editing. Um but, uh, you know, it ultimately ended up being the right choice. I mean, I really didn't have a choice. Uh, but because it was new technology, there was no, <laughs> there was no guarantee that six months was going to, um, you know, uh, they were actually going to be able to make it happen. And, in fact, when some of the first, you know, reels were coming, they were still tweaking um, <laughs> the scanner, uh, which uh, uh, was really terrifying. Um, but... Uh, it all worked out in the end, um, but that so we started at the tail end, uh, really getting going at the tail end of uh, 2017, and then I really didn't uh, because we didn't know what was on a lot of the large format footage, and that was my first thing to rifle through. Uh, we start we identified um, we prioritized reels based on um, descriptions on what they were, uh, you know the, the, what little information we had, so we knew and, and dates, so we knew things that happened during the launch. Um, and I wanted to cut the entire film uh, uh, from a linear perspective. So we just dealt with everything that happened in the first few days of the mission. And I would just, the minute that stuff got off the scanner, it was immediately, you know, couriered over to me on hard drives. Um, and then I would, uh, I would just cut it, you know, that same day I was, so I was cutting right as things were coming off the scanner, um, uh, really in solitude because it was just chaos over there. At one point I was going to edit over there. Uh, but it was um, just with all the amount of uh, back and forth between the reels that were coming in, um, you know, the, the prepping of the files, uh, you know, all the storage solutions that, were, that the tech team was dealing with. Um, it was just chaos. So uh, it was nice to just kind of be in a dark room by myself <clears throat> and uh, get a hard drive and, and just edit uh, every day. And every day it was, it was really exciting. There was just new things coming in every day and it just, you know, uh, blow through it um, was uh, was just really fun. And your process was when you got that stuff um, was to put it into this linear nine day timeline or look at yeah, it just like right. daily so, or what? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Steve. I know it's tough to tell. I'm actually an organized person by the way I talk, um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I knew that if things happened on, uh, again, we had dates. So if it said July 16th, 1969, that's my day one. Uh, if it said the 16th, I knew that was my day two. Uh, and uh, luckily, pretty much every single reel had that. Um, there was a lot of things that hit the cutting room floor. Uh, there was uh, large format things that were um, uh, that were in training, um, that happened during training. There was a world tour that happened. Uh, so when those things came, that weren't priority, I would certainly rifle through it to see if there was anything that we needed. Um, and in fact, the, you know, the end credit sequence and, uh, uh, was kind of burst and, and, and looking through all that material. Um, but, or if I was transcoding something or spinning something out and rifle through all the stuff I knew was going to be used in the film. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly how it came in. So, uh, the funnel of data was, 
um, if it, uh, and I would have the guys label. Uh, and we also had a, uh, a, a master um, scanning sheet, uh, which was a shared file that uh, the archivist at National Archives had access to. Um, the, uh, the post-supervisors at Final Frame uh, and then our team uh, as well. And then our experts, uh, like our archive producer in the UK, uh, who worked remotely uh, uh, for the bulk of the project, um, he was able to organize all of that stuff and kind of uh, tee it up for us and, and or me and know uh, exactly where things could. So if I had, you know, uh, uh, they call them uh, NASA uh, local identifiers. So if it was, you know, from the 255V collection, I knew that that was, uh, you know, prioritized on my V1 timeline. Uh, and that uh, if it had a date on it, um, I could throw that in the corresponding uh, day. Got it. And, and, and does that all kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm I'm interested in this idea of scene still. Did you just completely go linearly, or like you were saying, when you found an idea? Like I remember one of the scenes in the movie was as the astronauts were approaching the the launch site. They there was some kind of a leak that other technicians were trying to take care of. Yeah, so um, we had on that 30 track, we actually had, it actually, that loop started about 30 hours before uh, the launch. So you had, a you know, over a whole day of all this back and forth that was happening at Kennedy. Uh, so when the rocket actually takes off, just for reference, when the rocket takes off, they say tower clear. Um, at that moment, uh, the command of the mission shifts to Houston. Uh, but before that, it's all down in Florida at uh, Kennedy um, and in the firing room. So there's, uh, you know, a director and hundreds of people that are all on, on these loops. Uh, probably the most famous of them, and we were shocked when we heard him because no one had heard his voice before, was Gunter uh, Wintz, who is the pad commander, uh, who in Apollo 13, you know, Tom Hanks says he's getting suited, suited up uh, jokingly says, I wonder where Gunther went. Um, but he, uh, we had uh, footage of him. Um, and I, again, I never, I couldn't believe people didn't utilize this. Um, but uh, our archive producer on the back of one of these reels, we didn't actually scan it, it came from uh, his personal collection, uh, was uh, a bunch of CCTV uh, 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 footage of the Astrovan going to the pad. Uh, NASA, you know, had these PTZ cameras uh, located all over uh, the um, uh, not only the uh, the launch pad, but the, on the way to the launch pad, all the various NASA buildings. Um, I just thought it was a terrific little way to kind of showcase in a in a unique way uh, uh, the journey uh, of these guys going out to the pad. Because you know, you think about it, they get suited up, they get in this van, they get driven out, uh, and then they sit on top of this rocket. Well. That entire journey was just fascinating to me from a psychological standpoint, from the astronaut standpoint. You're getting suited up to go on this mission that, uh, you know, the weight of the entire world is on your shoulders. Then you get in a van. Then you have to drive eight miles out to this pad. Then you got to get into an elevator and go up 330 feet in the air and then go sit on top of this rocket, which has only been fired a few times. And I, I kept a stat uh, next to my edit suite, which showed that, of the um, all the manned and unmanned missions to the moon prior 1969, 
uh, only 48% of them were successful. So I'm sure that those guys didn't know that, but I wanted to convey that, you know, during that sequence that there, this was not, you know, a foregone conclusion that it was going to be successful. So, um, uh, as we were, uh, uh, you know, looking rifling through all of this, uh, footage, I'm seeing these guys in these hard hats working on this line. And then, uh, uh, just again, just listening for hours uh, to uh, the uh, to the public affairs officer at Kennedy, who was this really famous. They call him the voice of uh, Apollo. It's Jack King. Um, he had this big, thick Queens, New York accent. Um, he's just a character, uh, and you know, had this. Um, I mean, he's like you know a Harry Carey kind of you know uh, just larger than life uh, personality, or or like any name your big baseball broadcaster and. Uh, He's saying that there's this hydrogen leak that's happening, and he's so nonchalant about it. Well, we got a team coming out, you know, they're going to tighten some bolts around this hydrogen leak. And, and at the exact same time, he's like, you know, the Astro van is pulling up, and the guys are getting on the elevator, and up oh, here, here are the guys. And it was, it was. I go, we we were just joking among the team. We we're like, does anybody know that this was actually going on? <laughs> this is pretty astounding that you know. They have this leak. So it, it just turned out that we had the audio of it happening in real time. We also had this uh, closed-circuit television uh, footage as well. And you used that, if I remember correctly, in, like, split-screen, multi-screen, like CCTV yeah. footage. Yeah, so you actually see exactly what he's talking about, um, which is that. The Astro van is backing up to the elevator uh, meanwhile, the <laughs> the guys at the 200 foot level are tightening some bolts on the you know the nitrogen leak. Um, so to show that, and again, that goes back to um, you know what I was a, uh, a fan of those early films uh, that that did you know cut down of uh, you know parallel time, uh, the pre Woodstock and the pre you know ground pre uh, uh, style, which I'm sure um, you know the uh, Francis Thompsons and. Uh, uh, the editor on that project, the uh, the one I had mentioned before to be alive, was Theo Kamika, uh, and he went on to direct um, uh, uh, what's become a cult classic, Moonwalk One, uh, which documented the Apollo 11 mission. Um, and a lot of the footage that we were utilizing um, uh, was uh, he was directly responsible for uh, for that film. Um, so there was that was always in the back of my mind as we were. Um, uh, uh, working on that was to tell that, you know, the separate timelines, um, you know, through the, through the, um, use of split screen. Mm -hmm. And when you were building those scenes, did you, did you put stuff in a bin where you just pulling it out of this, this nine day sequence? Were you creating a timeline just for the scene or how were you? Yeah, so I just have a scene that says, or a bend that says footage, and then underneath, you know, within that bend um, are all the different sources of footage. Um, I really don't, um, I don't like to inundate myself with sequences. Um, so it's just a matter, like, I, I have a very good memory when it comes to numbers and, um, and, and shots. So um, when the guys would send me the proxy files, uh, they would reference um, the actual uh, um uh, uh, real that it was the, the the identifier itself. So it would usually have like about a seven uh, digit uh, 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 letters and numbers. So it'd be like two five five s dash. You know, like uh, uh, I know uh, uh, PM twenty eight was one that I used all the time. So 
I knew what was on that. And there was probably about 200 of those uh, from the large format. Um, and then I would have that for the 65, five perf. And then I would have one for uh, the 70 uh, millimeter, 10 perf. And there was another additional, probably a hundred of those. Um, and I just, I just memorized it really just, I knew which, you know, ones were which, um, the E8 engineering film is this famous slow motion film of, of uh, the rocket taking off. Um, shows all five rockets coming out of the, uh, you know, the bells of the engines coming out. Um, so, uh, you know, just, again, just saturating yourself with the footage and kind of memorizing it all. And then I would have a bend for audio. Um, and that actually... Uh, it worked in our favor to use Premiere because uh, Ben up in Toronto, when he was uh, syncing all the 30 track stuff, he would actually use Adobe Audition because he's not really an audio guy. Um, you know, our audio guys use Pro Tools and whatever else, but um, he that he just found that that was an easy way to sync everything. And it just naturally um, uh, worked out that I could, uh, you know, uh, import export very easily within uh, those Adobe products uh, for that stuff. So he was syncing the audio to the video in Audition. No, just the uh, the eleven thousand hours of audio. Oh. So um, when he when the audio was digitized, it was digitized. Uh, it was never synced up. So we had eleven thousand hours, and he didn't know some of it was like it'd be like an hour. Another clip would be like three hours. Another would be like 10 minutes and you didn't know what day it was. You didn't know anything. <laughs> so he worked uh, with this. It was actually a grad student out in uh, Germany who had developed uh, uh, an algorithm to look at uh, waveforms. And luckily they did have a time code carrier on the first track so they could uh, look at that. Um, I, it, it, we've got documentation. I can send it to you, but exactly what Ben did, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, but they basically thumbprinted um, this off carrier signal with something and were able to, uh, uh, you know, not, not, not too dissimilar from like, um, you know, uh, uh, look the waveform aggregators that, you know, are able to look at waveforms and stitch them all together um, and sync them all up. For this, we needed a little bit more than that because we needed, you know, pitch control, all this interleaving. Uh, there was hum that was introduced during the recording. Um, we wanted to time remap it, so we wanted to put it on the actual mission clock itself, so we knew exactly when Neil Armstrong, you know, said something that it was said in this exact amount of time, and this is exactly how it sounded on the original recordings. Um, so all of that was he did all of that within uh, uh, Adobe Audition. Um, and then we were able to, so we would get a project file uh, for each individual day and each individual tape itself. So the 30 tracks, uh, I believe were on nine, nine tapes uh, representing each day. Uh, and they were one inch uh, with 30 tracks on the one inch. NASA only built two of these machines uh, and one was built to service the other one in case it broke. Um, so they actually had these custom Soundscriber playback heads to be able to um, uh, digitize all of it. Uh, and that took years and years and years, uh, from the, the team at the university of, uh, Texas and Dallas. But when we, that uh, Adobe edition project, when I got it, um, from Ben, uh, I could literally just, and I'll, I could send you screenshots of it, but it was, um, you know, they were, um, uh, you know, any given time there would be 60 tracks, um, that you can just on off everything was sync. So I could, I can go and listen to, um, exactly who was talking at a given, a given time. If I had a retro guy that was talking to, um, 
you know, a backroom technician, I can isolate um, and solo those two tracks um, and just listen to their conversations. Um, that actually uh, happened. We that there was a scene that hits a cutting room floor uh, that'll be on the extras uh, uh, during the ancillary releases. But um, there was a 25 year old female that just popped up on the 30 track, which was so rare. You know, it's usually it's all just these you know white crusty old men that are talking um and uh she just uh comes on and this is a very vibrant uh mathematician uh and it turns out she had this really important job um she they had asked her to uh, uh run their math on the return trajectories uh, which were off uh, and she basically uh stopped short of calling them a bunch of dummies um but in the span of five minutes just basically spits out all this, uh, you know, all this math at them and why their numbers are wrong. Um, and she became, um, a flight controller that sat in the front room eventually during the Apollo missions on 13. She was right there. Her, her name's Francis, uh, they call her Poppy Northcutt. Uh, and, uh, great little side story. Unfortunately, we didn't have any footage of her. Um, so we couldn't really utilize her in the film. Uh, but, uh, it just goes to show you the power of, um, you know, discovering little hidden things like that uh, that happened on our project um, that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily know about um, if it wasn't for the work of all these, you know, people. Mm -hmm. uh, I've kept you quite a while. I want to kind of wrap things up with just that last thought. I, I tend to do these interviews pretty stream of consciousness. Um, you talked about not using this great story about this very unusual woman that showed up. And the obvious reason is, yeah, there's no visuals. So it's kind of hard to make this like the rest of the film what were what were you doing to get down to the story that you ended up with what what were some of your guiding principles for making those determinations of this is going to make it and this isn't yeah i just wanted to see a movie that you know i wanted to see um that i really hadn't seen depicted um i wanted it to be uh visually engaging which certainly uh with the discovery of the of the large format material um it was going to be uh but um it, again it, it kind of just goes into what are all those hidden moments of uh you know that that elicit emotional responses um to people that can connect with this um and I, and I didn't want it to be just about the astronauts. There were so many people involved um, that I think, you know, um, if you talk to them uh, and you hear it in our film, I mean, one of the things that always got me was, uh, you know, their last broadcast from space. And they, they did it all the time uh, during the mission was to thank all the people that got them that far. Um, and, you know, just not the people in mission control, but all the people that built the spacecraft, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and I wanted to, do that in a way uh, that, that was that could acknowledge those people without necessarily showing them, uh, and uh, and to just stay uh, within the, the the mission itself. Um, and you realize that everyone that was in mission control, um, working around the clock to make it a success. Um, uh, you know, there was just there was tons of them. Uh, you know, there was hundreds of people that you know were were all there. So. Um, I think that combined with, uh, again, just seeing unique things, um, you know, we scanned, uh, this image of this beautiful woman in the firing room. Uh, and I, I was like, where does she come from? Uh, and then we went back and you start, you know, realizing even in the wide shots, I think we can identify every single person in the firing room, the mission control at this point, uh, but getting to know who they were as people. Um, 
and you realize that uh, you know her name was Joanne Morgan. She was the only woman female that was at that was there first time uh, for Apollo 11. Um, again, we didn't have any audio, but we had stunning visuals of her. Um, another was I'd always seen. Um, you know, uh, uh, there was an African-American gentleman that was always shown in the front room of uh, Mission Control. Again, going back to that geography, I was looking at the scenes around him when I saw when we scanned that footage. I'd seen him in other films, uh, and I was like, where, where does he sit? Because it doesn't look familiar. Um, and they always just kind of mashed him into the background or kind of B-roll of something. Um, but it turns out he had this important job. It was more important than sitting in the front room. He was... Uh, he was in charge of um, monitoring solar flares. Uh, so the astronauts would give um, uh, uh, their radiation levels as they were you know, traveling to the moon. Um, and it was his job to jot those down, him and his team. And then to also monitor if there was any, we had all these satellites around the Earth that were monitoring the sun. And if there was a major solar flare activity, um, they could alert the spacecraft and they could take evasive um, action. Uh, and, and that was his job. Uh, so it was very, very important. Um, so we got to design a little scene around that, um, uh, which uh, I thought was, you know, uh, a really cool thing. Um, uh, so it was it was that, but also just staying on, again, going back to, uh, in the edit, just going back to all the main things that happened during mission. I mean, the nice thing with dealing with a film like this is you know you have Oh, did I lose you? Todd? Hello? Hey, there you got you me? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just trying to, um, uh, uh, to you know, stay on point with um, where you were in the mission, too, uh, in all, those, in all those, uh, those big moments. Yeah, and there's great, I also remember, there's really interesting footage of, like, this huge raft of people that are out there to watch the they're all in rvs and sitting in the back of their station wagons and then there's a there's a whole section of like the vip um stands and johnny carson and famous people walking around to see it yeah it was incredible initially we had this great um footage of uh eight millimeter footage of uh Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon um, and Isaac Asimov, they're all in this private jet. Um, and they get to Kennedy. Um, they're having a good time. But just like everybody else, they got to get on the van, uh, you know, or on a bus and, and go out to the pad. And everybody just kind of, you know, even though you're in the VIP section, you kind of became a part of everyone else. Uh, uh, and we initially had started the film with that um, before we had, you know, access to all the large uh, format stuff. But you realize what I'm monumentous time in history it was too um with vietnam civil rights going on um you know there was protests happening down there at the pad um and then you mentioned the vw bus buses i mean can you imagine i mean this this was uh this happened in july and then i'm sure that entire fleet of vw buses which was endless probably traveled up i-95 and went to woodstock uh you know a month later in <laughs> august so i can only imagine what that was like yeah, there's just great stuff throughout. It's it, it really interesting to me just the process of hey, we started this thing with eight millimeter footage of Johnny Carson, and then you realize, oh my gosh, we've got this incredible shot of the launch, you know, the 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 Saturn V rocket being rolled, you know, on this tread thing <laughs> transporter. It's incredible. You you just have to adapt, right? You have to go. 
wait, we've got a better way now. We thought we had the right way before, but now we have a better way now. Yeah, that's the beauty of documentary is, um, and particularly working with uh, archival materials, is to just keep yourself open to the possibilities that something's going to be better out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought for sure we had the blueprint down um, and how we were going to do it. I mean, I had everything down to, you know, to a minute. I knew that the film was going to be, you know, uh, 96 minutes back in, you know, the, the winter of 2017, (laughs) you know, that all gets thrown out the window. But if you put yourself in a position to just be able to be open to, you know, to that, um, uh, you know, you can make really good, uh, uh, films out of it. Yeah. Do you think that's one of your primary, um, skills or talents or whatever that ability to stay open to new material, new methods, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been very lucky in my career. Um, you know, I'm not an old man, but I'm not young either. Uh, you know, to see the transition of different technologies and, and different things. Um, you know, I'm proud to say my last two films, we've kind of, uh, even though we've, you know, deployed some newer technologies, particularly on this one, to deal with, um, you know, the, the large format footage, um, we, um, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on, you know, using old school things, you know, um, and that's probably uh, the beauty of uh, working with the team at um, Final Frame and also at IMAX uh, is developing some newer newer systems where, uh, you know, you can shoot on large format films or even large format digital, um, and it's not so inaccessible. Um, I think we're, we're all working uh, on some things that are going to be exciting for uh, a lot of filmmakers to be able to utilize um, some newer stuff where you don't need, you know, $20 million to, to make one of these types of films. You can do it um, for that's, you know, economically feasible and, and also um, uh, creatively uh, is, um, uh, you know, uh, something that you could um, you can do. Strange question, because uh, I'm looking at my nice big monitor behind me. Did you, because you had this gorgeous footage, did you, were you viewing it in 4K? Were you viewing it uh, 1990s, yeah. 1980? Yeah, so everything was 4K. Um, uh, even the, you know, the when we were in the Nakuda room doing the DI, that was all 8K. But um, the, you know, even the IMAX, um, you know, IMAX is 4K, um, uh, even the laser system. So, I mean, we did a, we did the, 4k laser and then we did the the 2k xenon but um and i gotta say you know that's another amazing part of the project was being able to test um so much down at uh smithsonian's air and space uh imax screen uh so we you know first five minutes i put together we got to go down there and, and test um and then uh we showed the first uh 30 minutes when i had that cut um, we got to show, you know, the astronauts and their families, um, and mainly for technical feedback, get the whole, you know, the whole team down there, all the audio guys. And, um, I say all the audio guys, really the work of, uh, one guy, um, and two, uh, with our IMAX, uh, mixer. Um, and then, you know, the, all the DI guys and, and actually, you know, see what it was going to sound like. Um, and that was, and, and look like, uh, and go back and, and, uh, and work on it. Um, and, you know, that's, that was certainly just a, a wonderful way to, to work. Um, but you were viewing in your house or in your office, you were viewing 4K? Yes. Yep. Yeah. 
so just the 4K. I was actually editing at home. My system was uh, actually on the laptop on a MacBook Pro, so I would have um, uh, you know half resolution, um, but I was full resolution, multiple um, uh, streams, tracks on um, uh, within Premiere uh, for the home, and that that was just a you know a Mac trash can. Okay, thanks, Steve. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Todd Miller. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend. Thanks. Mm-hmm.